morning. I'm Warren, he's Shirley. I can see he can hear, that's why we work together. But, uh, <laughs> have trouble remembering each other's names from time to time. <laughs> we're going to uh, we're going to introduce the directors. We're going to give you some uh, information on the first quarter earnings. Uh, we're going to uh, talk briefly about the David Sokol Lubrizol situation, and then we're going to open it up for your questions. Anything is, that relates to the Lubrizol matter uh, is going to be transcribed and will be put up on the website, the Berkshire Hathaway website, uh, just as promptly as we can, maybe, the, maybe this evening or this afternoon, maybe tomorrow morning, but very promptly because we want to be sure that all shareholders uh, hear or get to read every word of, uh, of what has been uh, said here about the matter. Uh, first thing I'd like to do is introduce the directors, and if they'd stand and remain standing, uh, you can withhold your applause as they stand, but you can go crazy at the end, uh, or you can continue to withhold your applause. That will be your call. Uh, Charlie and I are up here, and we don't like to stand up too often, so we'll skip our standing. The uh, Howard Buffett, Stephen Burke, Susan Decker, Bill Gates, Sandy Gottesman, Charlotte Guyman, Don Keogh, Tom Murphy, Ron Olson, and Walter Scott. Now we have we have a few slides that deal with the first quarter earnings. Um, I think Mark Hamburg would like me to emphasize that these are preliminary. This is about as early as we ever have a meeting in relation to the quarter. Uh, normally it's always the first Saturday in May, uh, so they had to work a little harder than usual to get these numbers together. And I would tell you as background that, that uh, Basically, uh, pretty much all of our businesses, uh, with the exception of those that are related to residential housing, uh, are getting better. And you can almost see it with most of them quarter by quarter. We have a wide diversity of businesses. We have more than 70 companies we list, but then Marmon itself has over 100 businesses. So. We are a cross-section of not only the American economy, but to some extent we see a fair amount about what's going on internationally, too. Uh, and in the first quarter, as has been the case really since the fall of 2009, both our non-residential construction businesses uh, uh, except for those non-residential construction businesses, our other businesses have generally gotten better quarter by quarter, and there, there was no exception to that in the first quarter. 
What was very different in the first quarter was that we had a uh, probably the second worst quarter for the insurance industry in terms of catastrophes around the globe. Uh, normally, the third quarter of the year is the worst uh, period because that's when hurricanes tend to hit the U.S. with most of them, uh, well, about 50% of them occurring in September and then sort of forming a normal curve on either side of September. So the third quarter usually is the record quarter. And the third quarter was the record quarter back at the time of Katrina. But in the first quarter of this year, uh, we had some major catastrophes uh, in the uh, uh, Pacific Asian areas, and that hit the reinsurance industry uh, particularly hard. I th no one knows at this point, I mean, it's a wild guess, but probably those catastrophes cost the reinsurance industry on the order of $50 billion. And we usually participate to the extent of 3 to 5%. First of all, I'll give you our overall earnings, um, the way we normally present them. And uh, if we'll put the first slide up, you can see that our insurance underwriting suffered an after-tax loss of $821 million. Now, when I wrote the annual report, I postulated normal earning power of Berkshire at about $17 billion pre-tax and about $12 billion after-tax, assuming break-even on insurance underwriting. Uh, our insurance underwriting has done better than break-even. In fact, it's made quite a bit of money for eight consecutive years. But I would say with the start of these catastrophes in the first quarter, uh, or the catastrophes experience we had in the first quarter, I would say that it's unlikely that we would have an underwriting profit uh, for 2011. It, if it was remarkably catastrophe-free from this point forward, including hurricanes in the United States, it's conceivable we would uh, break even or make a tiny profit. But that's, that's an improbable assumption. So I think for the first time in uh, nine years, we will likely have an insurance underwriting loss this year. Uh, I think our record may very well be quite a bit better than certainly most other reinsurers, and it does not change my expectation that over time our insurance underwriting should at least break even. And if you have followed the, uh, what I've written in the annual reports, if insurance breaks even, we get the free use of float. Uh, and that's been enormously valuable in the past and I would expect it to be in the, in the future. And if you look at the other lines, insurance investment income's down a little. That will go down more because our Goldman Sachs preferred was called in April. Our General Electric preferred is almost certain to be called in October. So we have lost, and we lost a, uh, we had called a note from Swiss Re that was paying us uh, 12% and came to something over $360 million a year when the Swiss franc went above par. So we have lost or are losing um, 
at least three very high-yield investments, which we cannot replace with similar investments at present. So that, that line will go down. On the other hand, uh, at the end of the quarter, we had $38 billion in cash, and that does not count the $5.5 billion that we were going to receive in April from our Goldman Sachs preferred. So that money is earning virtually nothing now, and I would not expect that to be part of the long-term picture either. So there would, you know, just a, a few percent on that would be many, many hundreds of millions of dollars. So I, I think over time, our insurance investment income, even though it will dip uh, throughout this year, I would expect that if we have a similar level of investments to actually grow from the level we show here. Uh, we had the full ownership of BNSF in the quarter this year. We only had it, I think, from February 12th uh, last year. So that, in significant way, accounts for the gain in that next line of railroad utilities and energy. But, but the, the BNSF also had a significant gain in earnings, and the railroad business uh, looks to me like it will have a, a very good year this year. Not just, not just our railroad, but, but all railroads. And uh, the competitive advantage of railroads is becoming more and more evident almost by the day, particularly as fuel prices increase. And in the remaining lines, we also had gains in most of our businesses. So uh, overall, uh, we got hit very hard in the insurance business. And if we'll move to slide two, we list the uh, three major catastrophes that occurred, which in aggregate we estimate uh, we have a total loss of a billion six seventy three pre-tax, and that figure, as with all uh, estimates, early estimates about major catastrophes, is subject to a lot of change. Nobody knows uh, what the insured losses will be from the Japanese earthquake. But this is our best estimate now. You'll notice that over over 40% of the underwriting loss comes from a contract we have with Swiss Re, uh, where we get 20% of their business. That contract is in the fourth of its five years. Uh, they have indicated that they will not be interested in renewing it. I just wish they told us that a few months ago. <laughs> the, uh, but we've, we've, we've enjoyed the relationship with Swiss Re. It's just that we enjoy it some quarters more than others. And, uh, our, our estimate, we've added a little something into their estimate because on balance we feel that most catastrophe losses develop upward. It's, it's sort of the nature of the business. But that, ex incidentally, the, um, the tornadoes in April, uh, just at Geico, we expect, and, and all we're talking about is automobiles here, cars, because uh, we don't insure uh, the homeowners. We, we act as agent in placing insurance for people, but, but we do not take the insurance risk. We estimate that 25,000 cars will, uh, will, get, will get automobile claims. Uh, that's, a, that's a lot of automobiles when you think about it. Uh, you know, our market share is about 9%, although it varies by state, but uh, 
but it's been an extraordinary tornado season, as you know. That does not hit, I, don't, I do not believe that that hits the reinsurance business particularly hard because it, there's, there are multiple, multiple events, but no one event is anything like, uh, say, the New Zealand earthquake. Uh, the New Zealand earthquake estimated at 12, 12 billion dollars of insured damage. Uh, Charlie, how many, how many people are in New Zealand? <laughs> well, I, I didn't, I didn't, we didn't, we don't practice these things as will become evident here. <laughs> what, about two, I'd guess, Three million? I'd guess a little more than that. Four? Five, maybe. Five, okay, five million people. So that's one-sixtieth of the population, we'll say, of the United States. And if you take uh, 12 billion and multiply it by 60, you come up with 720 billion, which is 10 times Katrina in terms of the impact on a, on a place like that. So those, there's been some really extraordinary earthquakes. And uh, um, as I say, the worst part of the season is generally speaking for reinsurers is yet to come. So this, this may be a year that the reinsurers will remember, although they might prefer to forget it. Um, there's some good news on the insurance front. On the next slide, uh, I show the growth in policies at GEICO month by month this year versus last year. Now, if you'll remember, in the annual report, I gave an explanation in talking about goodwill value, about how the goodwill of GEICO is carried on our books at about a billion dollars. And no matter how successful the business becomes, uh, that goodwill value has never increased on the books. But it does grow. And as I put in the annual report, you know, I estimate its value currently using the same sort of yardstick we used when we purchased the second half of the company back in 1995. I estimate that value is growing maybe to 14 billion. I mean, every policyholder at Geico, on average, has a value to us the way I calculate it, of something on the order of of $1,500. And when we add 318,000, and uh, as of yesterday, it was up to 381,000. When we add that, we added something approaching. $500 million to the goodwill value. That does not count the earnings from underwriting, which were substantial for GEICO. That does not count the investment income from the float. It does not count the investment income from the net worth we have attributed to it. That is added goodwill value, the same sort of goodwill, would, goodwill value that a Coca-Cola has or, or a Mars has or any company like that. And uh, people think of it differently when they think of most consumer products. But a policyholder to Berkshire uh, at GEICO has very, very significant value. There's a very significant percentage have been there for 10 years or more, and, and, and it, uh, uh, it's something that we do not realize on our balance sheet or income account, but it's an asset that's every bit as real as the numbers that we do put on the uh, balance sheet. So there's good news at GEICO. We are gaining market share every day. As a matter of fact, if you think about it, we have some people in the uh, adjacent room that will be glad to sell you GEICO policies. And if only 66 of you sign up, 
that's a goodwill value of about $100,000. So it, it, uh, it will uh, take care of some of the expenses of this meeting. At the <laughs> not, that I, not that I care whether you do it or not. <laughs> now, there's one more item I want to go through on the earnings picture just because it, it illustrates to some extent the capriciousness of accounting uh, and uh, how we value our securities uh, uh, or whether we take write-downs on them, I should say. There's something called other than temporary impairment, which is a, a, an accounting rule. It's kind of a fuzzy accounting rule, but it says that if you own a security for a while and you paid X for it, and it's been selling at, say, 80% of X for quite a while. Nobody knows exactly what quite a while means, and I'm sure they phrase it differently in the accounting textbooks. But anyway, if it sells there for quite a while, you're supposed to mark it down to that uh, new valuation and have that markdown go through your income account, through your profit and loss account. Now, we mark it down in any event for the balance sheet, and the balance sheet is what gives you the number for book value and is our reference point. But only when it meets this other than temporary thing does the markdown actually get run through the, through the profit and loss account. Now, on March 31st, as is shown, I believe, on the next slide, we owned some Wells Fargo stock, which had a cost of about $8 billion, and the market value was $11.3 billion. But some of the Wells Fargo stock we bought had, had been bought at higher prices than the March 31st figure, whereas, as you can see, a lot of the stock, which had a gain in it of $3.7 billion, had been bought at lower prices. Well, under the rules, we were required to mark down the stock we bought at a higher price by $337 million, whereas we ignored in the, in the, in the income account the $3.7 billion of gain. Now, interestingly enough, there's two ways you can account for securities, as I understand it, both fully meeting gap accounting requirements and if we, had, if we had used the average cost method, we would not have had to mark down, but we used what they call the specific identification method. Now, the specific identification method is actually useful to us from a tax standpoint, because it means whenever we sell a security, we can pick out the highest priced security and attribute the sale to that. So it, it actually saves us money uh, or the time use of money to get into specific identification. Uh, but we could just as easily use the average cost method, and then we would not have a write-down like we have. And that's why I, one of the reasons I emphasize that you, the fact that you should ignore uh, gains or losses in securities or derivatives on a quarterly basis or even an annual basis. The important thing is, is what the operating earnings of our businesses are doing and what the gain in book value generally has been. And then on top of that, you have to make your own estimate for what intrinsic value is, which would include things like
will the value that has been developed at GEICO. I, I apologize for taking you through the accounting lessons, but the headlines often just say what the final net income is, and as that as if that's the all-important figure, and, and sometimes it's the all-deceptive figure. I mean, it, it, it uh, really bears, if you include gains and losses, it, it bears really no connection uh, to the reality of whether a quarter has been satisfactory from our standpoint. But it does get a lot of attention in the press, and that's why we spend a, perhaps an inordinate amount of time trying to explain uh, what really takes place in our financials. Now, I think we're going to get to the questions and answers here in just a second. We'll alternate between, between uh, the press group on my right and 13 stations that uh, microphones that have been placed, I think a dozen of them in this room and maybe one in one of the overflow rooms. Uh, I'd like to just comment uh, for a few minutes and this will be transcribed and up on the uh, up on the internet at our webpage. I'd like to comment for just a few minutes, and I'd like to ask Charlie then to give his thoughts uh, uh, on the matter of David Sokol and the purchase of Lubrizol stock. Uh, you saw in the movie uh, a clip from the Solomon situation. And that occurred almost 20 years ago. It'll be 20 years ago this August. And at the time, there was a Sunday. Charlie was there. And I was elected the chairman at, what, about 3 o'clock in the afternoon or so, I think, that, uh, on, a, on a Sunday at Solomon. And I went down to address a press group. And almost the first, somewhere in the early questions, Somebody sort of asked me, you know, what happened? And uh, well, A, I'd just gotten to Solomon fairly recently, so I didn't know too much about it. But the, the phrase that came out of my mind then, out of my mouth then, sometimes my mind and my mouth are coordinated. The, uh, <laughs> the phrase that came out of my mouth then was uh, that it, what had happened was inexplicable and inexcusable. Now, it's 20 years later, and looking back on Solomon, I still find what happened inexplicable and inexcusable. I, I, you know, I will never understand exactly why some of the events that transpired did transpire. And to some extent, in looking at what happened a few months ago uh, with Dave Sokol's failure to notify me at all that he'd had any kind of contact with Citigroup. In fact, he directed my attention to the fact that they represented uh, uh, Lubrizol and never said a word about any contact with them. And then the purchases of stock immediately prior to re recommending Lubrizol to Berkshire, uh, I think I for reasons that are laid out in the audit committee report, which I urge you to read and which is on our website, I don't think there's any question about the inexcusable part that uh, uh, Dave violated in that the uh, 
code of ethics. He violated our insider trading rules, and he, he violated the, the uh, principles I laid out. I lay out every two years in a direct personal letter uh, to all of our managers, and which I've been doing for a long time. So I, you can read the audit committee report about that. The inexplicable part uh, is somewhat, well, it, it's inexplicable, but I'd like to talk about it a little bit because I will tell you what goes through my mind in respect to it. Uh, certainly, uh, well, one interesting point is that David, to my knowledge at least, made no attempt to disguise the fact that he was buying the stock. I mean, you know, you read about insider trading cases and people set up trusts in Luxembourg or they use neighbors who know neighbors or they use third cousins or they, I mean, they have, they have various ways of trying to buy the stock so that when it's later tr that FINRA is a supervising organization looks at the trading activity in the months prior to a deal, they do not see names that jump out at them as being associated with the deal. Uh, as to my knowledge, uh, Dave did nothing like that. So he was leaving a total record uh, as to his purchases. Now, I think at least usually and maybe always, uh, we are queried after any deal, we are asked uh, who knew about it when. And we supply a list of whether it's people at the law firm or people that are in a secretarial position at, at our place or the law firm. We, we give them a list of everybody that might have known or did know about the deal prior to the public announcement. And I, I don't know whether they do that 100% of the time, but certainly it's my experience that, that you, you, you get that. And then a while later, uh, you get a list of names uh, of people that FINRA again has picked up as trading it and they ask you whether any of those names ring a bell with you. So they're trying to put together whether anybody did any inside trading ahead of time. So the odds that if you're trading in your own name and you're on that list of people who know uh, of a deal ahead of time, the odds that it's not going to get picked up seem to me that uh, are very much against you. But to my knowledge, uh, Dave did not disguise the trading, which, you know, that's uh, somewhat inexplicable that, uh, that if he really felt he was engaging in insider trading that, and, and that knew the penalties that could be attached to it, that, that he uh, essentially did it right out in the open. So, um, a second fact, which is less, perhaps less uh, puzzling, but Dave obviously has a net worth in very high numbers. Uh, he made, uh, I think, close to $24 million. Uh, uh, he earned it from Berkshire last year, and, and we got our money's worth. But he did get $24 million, too. So I would say that there are plenty of activities in this world that are unsavory, that are committed by people with lots of money. So I don't regard that as, as you know, as totally puzzling. But I will give you one instance that does make it puzzling. It makes it very puzzling to me. Um, 
We bought Mid-American at the end, of, Berkshire Hathaway bought Mid-American at the end of 1999. Uh, Berkshire Hathaway bought about 80%. Walter Scott, who I just introduced in his family, was the second largest holder, I think something over 10%. And then two operating people, Dave Sokol, the senior one, uh, owned or had options on a big piece, and Greg Abel, uh, uh, a terrific partner of Dave's, also had a piece. And Walter Scott, and I've, I've told this story privately a few times, but not, I don't think I've done it publicly. Walter Scott came to me uh, a year or two after we'd bought it, and Walter said, I think we ought to have some uh, special compensation arrangement for Dave and Greg if they perform in a really outstanding manner. And he said, uh, I think maybe he suggested something involving equity and he saw me turn white. Uh, so uh, he said, why don't you design one and let me know. Uh, so I just scribbled something out on a yellow pad. It didn't take me five minutes. And uh, we call it sort of in honor of Charlie, although he didn't know about it. We called it the Lollapalooza. And uh, it provided for a very large cash payout, which I'll get to in a second, uh, based on the five-year compounded gain in earnings. And we were starting from a high base. In other words, this was not from any depressed level. And we set a figure that no other utility company in the United States was going to come close to. But if that figure were achieved, we were going to give $50 million to Dave and $25 million to Greg Abel. And I had Dave come to the office and I said, here's what Walter and I are thinking. And what do you think of this plan? And it had these figures on per share that, that like I say, move forward at 16% compounded per year. Uh, and then I said, here's the payout. And he looked at it for just a very short period of time. And he said, uh, he said, Warren, this is more than generous. But he said, uh, there's just one change you should make. And I said, what's that? And he said, you should split it equally between me and Greg. Instead of being 50 million for me and 25 for Greg, it should be 37 and a half apiece. So I witnessed, and Walter witnessed, and he talked to him about it, we witnessed Dave voluntarily without any, Greg had nothing to do with it, he wasn't there. Uh, we saw Dave transfer over 12 and a half million dollars, getting no fanfare, no credit, whatsoever, uh, to his, in effect, junior partner. Uh, and I thought that was rather extraordinary. And what really makes it extraordinary is that uh, $3 million, you know, 10 or so years later, would have led to the kind of troubles that it's, it's led to. I find I, I, that, that is really the fact that uh, I find uh, inexplicable, and I think I'll probably, you know, it's 20 years after Solomon. If 20 years from now, Charlie will be 107, and uh, we won't mention what I'll be. Uh, but I, 
I think 20 years from now, I will not understand uh, what causes a man to voluntarily turn away $12.5 million to an associate without getting any credit for it in the world. And, and then 10 or so years later, uh, buy a significant amount of stock a week before he talked to me. And when he talked to me about Lubrizol, it was either the 14th or 15th. Uh, he says it was 14th, and I have no reason to disagree with that. The only reason I couldn't say specifically was I had eight university uh, groups, I mean, 160 students in on that Friday. That's the only thing shows, and I spent most of the day with them. And the 10K and the 10Q that got printed out on Saturday have that date on them, the, the 15th, when I looked at Lubrizol for the first time. Uh, might be interested in knowing. I've been looking up 10Ks and 10Qs for 20 or 30 years, but I don't know how to print them out. So fortunately, Tracy Britt was in the office, and I said, Tracy, would you print this damn thing out? I, can't, I don't know how to do it yet. Uh, but that's, that, 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 that is why I don't know whether it's the 14th or the 15th. The, the 10Q says the 15th. Uh, but at that time, when Dave called me on it, he said nothing about contact with Citigroup or anything of the sort. And, he, and I said, I don't know anything really about the company. He said, well, uh, take a look at it. It, 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 you know, it might fit Berkshire. And I said, well, how come? And he said, well, I, the, and he said, I've owned it, and, and it's, a, it's a good company. It's a Berkshire-type company. And, uh, uh, you know, I obviously made a big mistake by not saying, well, when did you buy it? But I think if somebody says, I've owned the stock, you know, it sounds to me like they didn't buy it the previous week. It, uh, uh, um, so th there we are with a situation which is, Sad for Berkshire, sad for Dave. Still inexplicable in my mind, and uh, we will undoubtedly get more questions on it. We'll be glad to answer them. Charlie, do you have any thoughts on this? Well, I think it's generally a, spec, uh, a mistake to assume that rationality is going to be perfect, even in very able people. We prove that pretty well, regularly. Do you have any explanation for the irrational? <laughs> yeah, I think hubris contributes to it. Well, we've gotten quite a bit out of them, folks. <laughs> okay, let's go to work. We'll, uh, We'll start with uh, Carol Loomis of Fortune Magazine. I might as well, I should introduce our, our group here. Uh, oh, we didn't go alphabetical this time. We've got, we've got Carol, then we've got Andrew Ross Sorkin of the New York Times, and we have Becky Quick of CNBC. Now, in terms of my checkoff system, I'm still going to go to Becky. That's alphabetical. And so, Andrew, it didn't do you any good to try and move over there into the center spot. Carol, you're, you're on. Um, good morning from all of us. And um, I will uh, make the small uh, preamble that I've made before. We've been getting questions for a couple of months, each of us on our email. Uh, sometimes a question will be sent to all three of us, and sometimes they'll just send to one of us.
therefore, it becomes very hard to count how many we've uh, had. Uh, but certainly it's in the many hundreds and probably in the up into 1,000, 2,000. Um, and obviously we aren't going to be able to ask uh, every question, every good question. We have a lot of good questions we won't be able uh, to get to. Um, but it's just that the, you had to pick and choose. And the other thing I should say is that whatever we do ask, uh, Warren and Charlie have no idea of the question. Uh, uh, none. No hint. Sometimes um, we have no idea of the answer either, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, I will begin. Um, I don't think that uh, anybody will be surprised that it is a Sokol question. Um, and actually, the, this particular long-term shareholder um, uh, believed, as uh, Warren has believed, uh, he says, um, I do not see why you should have been expected to ask Sokol about his Lubrizol stock holdings when he said he owned the stock. That wouldn't have been a natural question. But when you found out the details of his stock purchases a short time later, I do not understand your reaction. Surely you realized immediately that these facts were going to become known and that they were going to damage Berkshire's reputation something you had said repeatedly you would be re ruthless in protecting. Being ruthless probably would have meant you're firing Sokol on the spot, but you didn't do that. And then you put out a press release that many Berkshire shareholders that I have talked to found totally inadequate. You have always been very direct in stating things. You were not direct in that press release except in praising David Sokol. Otherwise, you stated some facts and behavior that you said you didn't believe was illegal. And then you ended the release, leaving us. Now, maybe you thought it, somehow we, you, we were going to read between the lines without expressing any anger about what had happened. Why were you not incensed? If you were, why did you not express your anger? Why did you handle this matter in the inadequate way you did? Yeah, the... The... It wasn't really immediately thereafter. I learned on March 14th, which was the day we announced, and now bear in mind his first conversation when he said he owned the stock was January 14th. Uh, in between January 14th and March 14th, uh, Dave gave no indication that he'd had any contact with Citigroup of any kind. And um, as we learned later, I mean, he went they met in maybe October or something like that where, and talked about possible acquisition candidates for, for Berkshire. But none of that, he, uh, he told me at one point, he said Evercore and, and uh, City represent Lubrizol. One of them represents the directors and one of them represents the company and, and not a word about any contact. On March 14th, when the deal was announced in the morning, I got a call from John Freund. John Freund is probably here today. John Freund works for City in Chicago, and he handles, he's handled the great majority of our business and equities for decades. And I've got a direct line to him. I talk to him frequently. And he called and said, uh, congratulations, and, you know, and, uh, and, Aren't you proud of our words to the effect? You can talk to 
John directly, although I've been told that the city lawyers have told him not to talk, but that knowing the press, they get out of him. The, uh, the, he's, essentially his words were that, that city's team had worked with Dave on this acquisition and they were proud to be part of it, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, uh, this was all news to me. Uh, so that set up some yellow lights at least. And the next day I had Mark Hamburg, our CFO, call Dave and Dave readily gave him the information about when he had bought the stock and how much. Mark also asked him what the participation of, of City had been in the reference to Berkshire side of the transaction. And Dave said that, well, he called a fellow, he thought he called a fellow there to get their phone number, uh, which turned out to be somewhat of an understatement. Um, now, during the period when we announced the deal on March 14th, Lubrizol is the one that needed to prepare a proxy statement. We were not issuing shares at Berkshire, so there was no proxy statement, no uh, uh, nothing of this, that sort on our part. The Lubrizol legal team, Jones Day, went to work with the Lubrizol management to start preparing the proxy statement. Uh, we eagerly awaited uh, to see the first draft of that because I was going to be leaving for Asia on Saturday, uh, which I guess would be uh, the 19th, and I wanted to see what Lubrizol had to say about this whole city matter or anything else. They, the most interesting part of every proxy statement is something that says, uh, it's basically the, the history of the transaction, and, and, and it's, it's the first thing I read on any, any deal because it, it, it gives you a blow-by-blow blow of what has taken place. And as Mark Hamburg can tell you, I kept, and our law firm can tell you, I kept urging them to get that to me before I took off uh, for Asia. Uh, we got that the afternoon of Friday the 18th, and it had a fair amount of material in it about Dave's involvement uh, with Citigroup. Um, then at that point, uh, I believe it was at that point, uh, our law firm got involved, Munger Tolls got involved in their input to the Lubrizol uh, lawyers as to what we had seen that was different or what we had seen that they didn't know about that we could add. Ron Olson, the director of Berkshire and partner of Munger Tolls, was on the trip to Asia. So we got on the plane on, on Saturday the 19th and traveled over the next week until the 26th. And we knew at that point that his partners uh, at Munger Tolls were interviewing Dave, as maybe some other people too, but certainly Dave, and I believe that he was interviewed at least three times uh, about both the stock purchases, 
the history of things with, uh, of his relationship with, uh, with Citigroup, and they were assembling this information. I don't have a BlackBerry or whatever it may be. Uh, Ron does, so he would get some information as we were over there, and he was getting some input, but, uh, uh, and we decided that, that when we got back, we would need to have a prompt meeting of the Berkshire board about this matter. And we would also learn what the full details, at least of what Bob Denham and, and maybe other attorneys at, at Munger Tolls uh, learned from uh, their interviews with Dave. And we got back on, I guess it would be Saturday the 26th and on the 28th, we were gonna bring Charlie into it before uh, calling a board meeting, but there would have been a board meeting that week, and then uh, about the uh, afternoon, uh, a letter was delivered by Dave's assistant, which really came out of the blue, and I, he said to me, uh, he felt he was retiring on a high point, and he gave the reasons why he was retiring, which I laid out and so on. Uh, I don't know whether the questioning the previous week had affected his attitude. He would say not. Uh, but in any event, uh, we had that resignation. That resignation, uh, as is, I believe it may have been put in the uh, audit committee report, um, may have saved us some money. If we'd fired him, uh, the question would be whether it was with cause or, or not with cause, and we would have said it was with cause, but that might have very well gotten litigated, and, and a retirement did provide, in effect, the same non-level of severance payments that, uh, that a, a firing uh, with cause provided. So I drafted up uh, a press release, which has since been the subject of at least mild <laughs> criticism. <laughs> and uh, I laid out the good things that Dave had done, which he had done for the company. He had done many good things, uh, some extraordinary things. And, and then I laid out uh, some actions which I said, based on what I knew then, uh, uh, did not seemed to me to be unlawful, and incidentally, I talked with, with um, both Charlie and Ron about that. Uh, Ron would have been more careful in that wording. I'm not sure Charlie would have been. Uh, I'll let him speak for himself on that. Uh, and we ran it by, I ran it by Dave on Tuesday morning just to be sure the facts were accurate. And he said he objected very much to something that I put in where I said that I thought that he was, in effect, had had his hopes dashed for succeeding me, and that was part of the reason. And he said that was absolutely not true, that he had no hopes ever of succeeding me, and, uh, and that I, you know, basically, he was telling me what was in his mind, and I shouldn't be trying to, to uh, second guess what it was in his mind. So I took that part out. Uh, but he affirmed all of the other facts in that letter, and then I took it out, I sent it to him a second time. 
to make sure that uh, he was okay with the facts, and he said they were accurate. Now, in there was included the fact that Dave uh, had no indication that that uh, Lubrizol had any interest in an approach from Berkshire, and that, at least according to the final Lubrizol uh, uh, proxy, is not the case. I have not talked to anybody except John Freund at, at, at the Citigroup, so I, I have no idea what took place with the investment bankers at Citigroup, except for what I read in the Lubrizol proxy. But the Lubrizol proxy now says that, that Dave did know that Lubrizol had an interest on December uh, 17th. But both in the two chances he had to review it, and then when he went on CNBC uh, on a Thursday and talked for half an hour, he did, made no attempt to, to correct any of the facts in it. Now on Wednesday, when we put out the report, we had to have a board meeting first. Uh, it was news to the board. Uh, they got the release a little bit ahead of time, and then we had a board meeting. Uh, we also uh, delivered, uh, well, we've, through, our, through our law firm, we phoned the head of the enforcement division of the Securities and Exchange Commission and told them exactly the facts uh, regarding the stock purchases and, and, uh, and uh, anything else that they might have cared to know. Uh, so I think we acted uh, in that case very, very promptly uh, to make sure the Securities Exchange Commission and the top of the Enforcement Division was uh, well-versed on what had taken place to our knowledge up to that point. So from our standpoint, my standpoint, Dave chances for uh, lawsuits about compensation to him. And we had turned over some very damning evidence, in my view, uh, to both the public and to the SEC. Uh, what I think bothers people is that there wasn't some big sense of outrage or something in the, in the, uh, in the uh, release. And, uh, you know, I plead guilty to that. I, 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 this fellow had done a lot of good things for us over 10 or 11 years, and I felt that if I'm laying out a whole bunch of facts that are going to create lots of problems for him for years to come, that I also uh, list his side of the uh, uh, equation in terms of what he'd done for Berkshire. And, I'd, uh, and as I said a little bit earlier, you know, one thing I didn't even lay out was this extraordinary act where, in effect, he turned over $12.5 million to a fellow employee. Uh, so that, that's the history of my thinking on it. <laughs> Charlie, you want to add anything? Well, yes, well, I think we can concede that that press release was not the cleverest press release in the history of the world. The facts were complicated, and we didn't foresee appropriately the natural reaction. But I would argue that you don't want to make important decisions in anger. You want to display as much ruthlessness as your duty requires, and you do not want to add one single iota because you're angry. So 
Tom Murphy, one of our best directors, one of our best directors always told the people at Cap Cities, you can always tell a man to go to hell tomorrow if it's such a good idea. <laughs> and so the, the anger part of it, and I don't think it was wrong to remember the man's virtues as well as his error. I might add as an aside, Charlie and I have worked together for 52 years, and we have disagreed on a lot of things. We've never had an argument. It, uh, you know, we, I, I need Tom Murphy's advice to remind myself of it a lot of times on other things, but with Charlie, it's never even been necessary, I, long before I met Murph. Okay, let's go to uh, area one. Mary Broderick, Berkeley, California. Good morning, Mr. Buffett. Good morning, Mr. Munger. And a big thank you. You probably aren't aware of this, but you've been my personal financial and investment advisors for years. I would like to know what you think the effect of the government ending the POMO program mid-July this year will have on the stock market and the economy in general? The government ending the, are you talking about QE2 or? Permanent Open Market Operation. Oh. Oh. Well, you're one acronym ahead of me. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, uh, well, it, just a, as we're discuss, uh, discussing it now, it's no secret what they're going to do. I mean, it's, it's sort of the most advertised open market purchase uh, in history uh, and, and probably in terms of defining the amount per month and when it comes to an end and, you know, the, uh, what the balance sheet will look like at the end of the Fed. So I don't think... You know, if, if something is that well known by all participants in a market, I think any effect of it has been discounted by this point in time. I mean, if you know, if you if you uh, if you say you're going to increase tax rates in a year, we'll say on corporations or decrease them or whatever it may be, and and it's really done and locked in stone. Uh, the market doesn't wait until the date when the tax increases or decreases go through to, to build that into market prices. So I don't, I see no reason, there may be some other things that happen then, but I see no reason why the, uh, simply having uh, will cause any significant change in stock or bond markets at that time. Uh, you know, obviously a huge market force will be withdrawn. I mean, you buy $600 billion worth of treasuries and, you know, you probably leave a few traces along the way that you've done it. And, and it has been $100 billion or so a month, and, and that purchasing will not be in the market, but the government issuances of debt will still be at a level that are consistent with what they are now. So it will be a different market, but I think it's a different market that's already been anticipated. Charlie? I have nothing to add. Becky? 
I'd like to ask a question uh, that comes from Ram Tarakand from Sugarland, Texas. He says, good morning, Mr. Buffett and Mr. Munger. You have always put great emphasis on hiring and retaining managers that not only have exceptional talent, but also adhere to the higher standards of corporate ethics and behavior. Recent events surrounding Mr. Sokol's actions have demonstrated that we were not very far from a situation where someone running Berkshire Hathaway had great talent but lacked the other quality that has made Berkshire the envy of the business world. In some ways, we are relieved that these events happened when you were still at the helm. But coming back to the succession plan that you have in place, how can you ensure that there are no more Sokols in the lineup of exceptional managers that you have? Yeah, he, he made an, uh, an assumption there about Sokol being the next in line, which uh, I'm not sure uh, was warranted. But, but he certainly was entitled to think that he was a candidate. Uh, and and uh, there are, that is one of the reasons that I think it's a good idea if uh, my son Howard Buffett, who would have no, get paid nothing and have no activities in the company, be the chairman uh, after I'm not around because you can make a mistake in selecting a CEO. I mean, it, it, you know, I think the odds of us making a mistake are very, very low. I certainly the candidate that I think is the leading candidate now, I, you know, I would, I would uh, lay a lot of money on the fact that, that he is straight as an arrow. But mistakes can be me. You know, the, the, the Bible says the meek shall inherit the earth. But the question is, will they stay meek? You know, the, <laughs> and the idea of having an independent chairman who would be voting a lot of stock, because even at my death, uh, because of the concentration of A stock and so on, the, the executors would have a very significant block of stock. And if some mistake were made, it would be easier to change if not only a very large block of stock uh, were uh, uh, available to express an opinion, but also if the chairmanship was not locked in with the CEO. It, 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 it's, it's gotten less tough to change CEOs at companies where either their, their moral or their intellectual qualities are found lacking but it's still difficult if, if uh, you know, it's, it's particularly difficult if they turn out to be a mediocre CEO. If, if the person's really bad, uh, you know, people will get rise up sometimes and uh, particularly if they have meetings uh, without the CEO present, but it's, it's not an easy job to displace a sitting CEO uh, who also holds the chairman's position and controls the agenda and all of that. So I think an independent chairman, particularly one that represents a very large block of stock and has no designs himself on taking over the place, uh, is a safety measure for the possibility, uh, however remote, that the wrong decision is made. But I will tell you that the directors of Berkshire will be thinking every bit as much about the quality of the person uh, as a human being as they will be thinking about uh, their, their managerial uh, skills because uh, it's vital that you have somebody at Berkshire, in my view, that, that is running the place that 
really cares more about Berkshire than he does about himself in terms of advancement. And I think we have uh, multiple candidates that fulfill that. And the idea of an independent chairmanship is a is a, you know part of the belt and suspenders. Charlie. Well, you know your idea about the Buffett family as a precedent. The Rockefellers left the management of Standard Oil many, many decades ago, and they, but they did inter intervene once, and that was to throw out, what was it, the head of Standard of Indiana, and it was on moral grounds. So th th that sort of thing can happen, and you have put another string in our bow. Okay, we'll go to area two. Caroline Tall, Boston, Massachusetts. Mr. Buffett and Mr. Munger, if you were going to live another 50 years, and we sincerely hope you do, and could add one additional sector or asset class to your circle of competence, which sector would it be and why? Well, that's a very good question, and I particularly like the preamble. The, uh, <laughs> well, you would... You would certainly pick a, a sector that's large because it isn't going to make any difference uh, to Berkshire if we get to be experts on some tiny little uh, industry or business. Um, I would say that, that, you know, it would have to be uh, something in the, this isn't going to happen, but, but it, it if I could really become uh, expert, and I mean really expert, knowing more than most, almost anybody else about the subject, uh, in the tech field, you know, I think that that would be terrific. It isn't going to happen, but uh, it's, it's going to be a huge field. There are likely to be, you know, a few enormous winners, a lot of disappointments, so that the ability to pick the winners, you know, is, is far disproportionate to the ability to pick the winners, we'll say, among major integrated oil companies where they're sort of all equated in price. And, you know, you're, you're not going to have a big edge in trying to pick Chevron against Exxon, against Continental, you know, and Occidental and you name it. But the degree of disparity in results among larger tech companies in the future is likely to be very, very dramatic. And if I had the skills where I could pick the winners there, I would do a lot better than if I had the skills to pick the winners in the major integrated oil field. Uh, um, you probably will have better luck with Charlie on this one because he, he, he knows a lot more about a lot of industries than I do. Charlie, what's your answer? Well, it would either be tech or energy. And I think that we're the wrong people to develop the expertise. I think if we were going to do it, it would have already happened. Yeah. Yeah. No, I do think we might identify somebody else who has abilities that we lack. That's been very hard for us, but. <laughs> we're not going to tell you. But, but we've done a little better lately. It's a good question. Andrew? 
This question comes from a shareholder named Ralph Coutant, who asks, uh, in your press release, your original press release, you noted that Dave bought, brought the idea of purchasing Lubrizol to me on either January 14th or 15th. Initially, you said I was unimpressed. You went on to note that on January 24th, you sent another note to Dave indicating your, quote, skepticism about making an offer for the company. However, in a very short period of time after Dave's discussion with Lubrizol's CEO, you, quote, quickly warmed to the idea. Please clarify what caused you to, quote, warm to the idea so quickly. If this didn't strike you as being a great business at first glance, what changed? And what was David Sokol's role in convincing you? Yeah, the, it wasn't that it didn't strike, it struck me as a business I didn't know anything about initially. Uh, you know, you're talking about petroleum additives. Uh, I, I never would understand the chemistry of it, but I, but that's not necessarily vital. Uh, what is important is that I understand the economic dynamics of the, of, of the industry. Is there, are there competitive modes? Is there ease of entry? All of that sort of thing. I did not have any understanding of that at all initially. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, I suggested to Dave, I said, Charlie's a lot smarter about, about oil than I am. Why don't you give him a call? Because I don't, you know, I, I, I just don't know anything about that business. And I talked to Charlie a few days later, and I, I don't remember whether I asked him whether David called or anything, but I, but I, I mentioned it to Charlie. Charlie says, I don't understand it either. So when I talked to Dave later, he had not, talked, he had not gotten a hold of Charlie. I told him, forget it. He's as bad as I am. Uh, what Dave passed along to me uh, after having that dinner with James Hambrick, and which I later confirmed in a lunch when James Hambrick came out here on February 8th, it was, but it was the same thing. Was, I, I, I thought, I, and, I, and I still feel, I thought I got a good understanding of industry dynamics and how the business had developed over time, what the role of oil companies was and would be in relation to a chemicals additive. The, the oil companies are the biggest customers. They're, they sell base oil to a Lubrizol, but they, they, buy the, they are the big customers. And they have gotten out of the business to quite a degree, although uh, there's two of them left in it. Uh, so this industry had consolidated over time. I looked at the question of ease of entry you know, every time I look at a business, when we bought C's Candy in 1972, I said to myself, if I had $100 million and I wanted to go in and take on C's Candy, could I do it? And I came to the conclusion, no, so we bought C's Candy. If the answer had been yes, we wouldn't have uh, done it. I asked myself that same question, you know, can I start a soft drink company and take on Coca-Cola if I have $100 billion, you know? Uh, Richard Branson tried to uh, some years ago in something called Virgin Cola. You know, the brand is supposed to be a promise. Uh, I'm not sure that that's exactly the promise you want to get if you buy a soft drink, but uh, in any event, I felt after my conversation with Dave, subject to a second conversation with, with James Hambrick, but covering the same ground, that 
it's not impossible at all for people to enter this business, but, but in terms of the service that, and the relatively low cost of what Lubrizol brings to the party, and in terms of people trying to break into a market and take them on, uh, and it's not a huge market, it's probably only a $10 billion market overall. I decided that there was a pretty good sized motor on this business. They, they got lots and lots of patents, uh, but more than that, they, they have a connection with customers. They work with customers when new engines come along to develop the right kind of additive. And so I felt that I had an understanding didn't understand one thing more about chemistry than when I started, but I felt that I had an understanding of the economics of the business the same way I felt that when the ISCAR people talked to me, I mean, who would think that you could have, you know, take some tungsten out of the ground in China and put it in the little uh, carbide tools and that you could have some durable competitive advantage, but I decided ISCAR had a durable competitive advantage after looking at it for a while. Uh, that's the conclusion. I, I have come to the conclusion that, and Charlie as well, that, that the, the Lubrizol position as the dominant, or the number one company, not dominant, but the number one company in terms of market share uh, in, in, in that business is sustainable and that it's a very good business over time. It helps, you know, they are helping engines run longer, run smoother, you know, uh, you know when metal is acting on metal, that uh, uh, lubricants are important and they're always going to be around. And I think Lubrizol will be the leading company uh, for a very, very long time. And that, that's the conclusion I came to. And I did not have a fix on that, uh, nor did Charlie, uh, prior to, uh, Dave relaying on to me what he had learned at that dinner, uh, which incidentally, Lubrizol had been telling the world, I mean, they made investor presentations and all that uh, quite extensively over the years. Uh, I simply hadn't paid any real attention to it. And, and uh, uh, when it was explained to me, I thought I understood it, and I still think I understand it. I think Lubrizol will be a very, very, uh, good addition to, to Berkshire, and uh, I saw James Hamburg just yesterday, and despite the turmoil around this, they are very enthused about becoming part of Berkshire, that they regard it as the ideal home. Charlie? Yeah, you know, Iskar and Lubrizol, to some extent, are sisters under the skin. You got very small markets that aren't really too attractive to anybody with any sense to uh, enter. And fanaticism in, in service. So if you have any more like that, why well, please give Warren a call. Okay, area three. Uh, this is Sean Shaochu from Ottawa, Ontario. Uh, Warren, Charlie, I admire you guys tremendously. I want to ask a question about the valuation of your company. You said price is what you pay and value is what you get. In your letter to the shareholders this year, each Class A share owns about in investment about $95,000, and each share commands 
an earning of $6,000. So in my simplistic way of calculation, each share is worth $95,000 of investment plus the earnings discounted at 7%. That's another about $90,000. So it adds up to about $185,000. Is that correct? Does that mean the complexity of your empire is a value trap? We, um, we give those figures because we think they're important, both the uh, investments per share and the operating earnings per share, excluding the earnings that come from the investments, and, uh, and leaving out insurance underwriting profits or losses because we think at worst they'll break even, but they do bounce around from year to year. Uh, those figures are pre-tax on the operating earnings, uh, so I'm not sure whether you're applying your discount factor to pre-tax or after-tax, but we think they're important. And I would expect, that, well, the operating earnings you know, are almost certain uh, to increase. Uh, how much, you know, who knows, but that number is likely to go up. The investments are still about the same uh, as at year end, but that they could go up or down based on whether we're able to buy more operating businesses. Uh, our goal is our goal is to build both numbers to some extent, but our our primary goal is to build the operating earnings figures. We never, we, if Charlie and I had to stick a number in an envelope right now in front of us as to what we thought the intrinsic value of Berkshire was, well, neither one of us would stick a figure. We'd stick a range because it, it, it would be uh, ridiculous to uh, come up with a, a single specific number, which encompasses not only the businesses we own, but what we're gonna do with the capital in the future. But even our ranges, uh, would differ modestly, at, uh, and they might might differ tomorrow in terms of how I would feel versus today, but not not dramatically at all. Uh, I would say this: uh, I think I certainly. Uh, well, you, you've received signals once or twice when we said we would buy in our stock. We obviously thought that it was selling below the bottom of a conservative range of of. Um, intrinsic value, and we did that once some years ago, and by saying so, of course, the stock went up, and so we never got any stock bought. And so there's sort of a self-defeating factor about, uh, about taking the kind of uh, approach to it that we do in terms of really telling people that the only reason we'll buy in stock is because if we think it's cheap. That is not standard practice in corporate America at all. In fact, corporate America, to some extent, buys in their stock more aggressively when it's high than when it's low. But uh, uh, they may have a, some equation in their mind that escapes my reasoning power. But the, uh, uh, I would, we do not regard Berkshire as overpriced. And I would say that uh, we, we had very, Fairly, very recently, we had a very, very large international company that uh, might well have been interested in doing something with Berkshire. And 
it, it's a very, very nice company, but it's bigger than we can handle unless we would use a lot of stock. And we won't use the stock. We, would, we, we, uh, we just think our shareholders would come out behind, be a wonderful company and you know, make a lot of headlines. But in the end, our shareholders would be poor because our stock is a currency. And, and unless it's fully valued, it's, it's, it's uh, a big mistake to use it as a currency. Now, we used some in the Burlington deal, but we used a whole lot more cash. And in effect, we only used 30% for stock, and it was worth doing. But it was painful. And if Lubrizoller wanted to do a deal involving stock, we would not have done it. I, I, I told uh, James Hambrick that right off the bat. So we had absolutely no interest in, 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 in buying Lubrizol. We were perfectly willing to give uh, you know, close to $9 billion in cash. And we, in my view, we, we were getting our money's worth. Uh, but we would not have given a significant portion of it in Berkshire stock because uh, we would be giving away part of the businesses that we already own. And we like Burlington and we like C's Candy and we, we, we like Escar. And to give away a portion of those, even to get another very good business, would not make financial sense for our shareholders. So you can draw your own deductions about our calculations of intrinsic value from that statement. Charlie? Well, he's obviously looking at the two right factors. And I think that we have not permanently lost the ability to do some interesting things eventually with uh, our enormous wealth in cash and marketable securities. We won't always be as inactive as we are now. Well, we're not that inactive, Charlie. Well, we, <laughs> oh, I don't know. You practically crawl out of your skin sometimes. <laughs> uh, Nine billion is, you know, we. If we say normal earning power is $12 billion, that, that, that uses up a good portion of one year's quota. Although we'd like to use more. I mean, there's no yeah, question. Yeah, you're talking. <laughs> Can you see us using stock in the next few years? If the business were good enough, of course. Yeah. Our trouble is, it's a terrible trouble you people have, and the businesses you already own are so good, it's not wise to part with them to get a business we don't own. Ordinarily. Carol? Um, this is uh, Warren, this is, and Charlie too, from your longtime uh, Omaha friend, Dick Holland. Whenever you talk in a general way about America's economic for future, your remarks are invariably positive, even glowing, despite the severe problems of growing public and private debt the huge budget imbalances that result, and no real policies to solve these problems. Some experts believe that we may reach the point where future bond offerings to cover the rising debt might fail. Many wonder if we are not entering a time of national decline. How can a lousy, long-term U.S. economy make you so happy? And why do you see gold nuggets where others see salt? That's from Charlie's good friend as well, Dick Holland, who we both have known for 60-plus years. Um, I don't see how anybody can be other than enthused about this country. 
If you look back to 1776 or 1789, whichever one you want to date it from, uh, you know, it has been the most extraordinary uh, economic period in the history of the world. In fact, if you go back, I was born on August 30th, 1930. Now, if somebody had come to me in the womb and said, let me tell you what it's like outside now. Yeah, the stock market has just crashed, but you haven't seen anything yet. 4,000 banks are going to fail. The Dow Jones average is going to go down to 42. It was 381 back just a little bit before you were conceived. And it's going to go to 42. They're going to close the banks for a while. We're going to have 25% unemployment. We're going to have the Dust Bowl in the Midwest. The grasshoppers are going to take over. Uh, you know, it would be like in that Woody Allen movie where he says, go back, go back. And, and I, the, uh, all this happened since August 30th, 1930, is that the standard of living of the average American has increased six for one. Six for one. You know, that's absolutely incredible. I mean, you look at centuries where nothing happened for the average person. I mean, century after century. So we have a system that works magnificently. It gets gummed up periodically, and it always has troubles. I mean, you know, I, my, my father was very anti-New Deal. So my sisters and I sat around a dinner table from the first week in Remember hearing how things were going to go to hell. As a matter of fact, my father-in-law uh, told my wife-to-be and her mother that he wanted to have a talk with me before we got married. And he was very much on my side, so I was not in a panic about this or anything. But I went down to his house shortly before the marriage, and this wonderful man, Doc Thompson, sat in a chair for a couple of hours, and he said, Warren, he said, I just want to tell you that you're going to fail, but it's not your fault. And he said, you and Susie, you, my daughter, you, you know, if you starve, she would have starved anyway. I mean, it, it is not your fault. It's because, you know, it's, it's, it's because the, the Democrats are in, you know, and they're going to take the country down the road to communism and, you know, and, and just don't worry about the fact you're going to fail. Because, and this went on for quite a while. Uh, and then he blessed me and we got married. It was a happy ending. But ever since, when I got out of school in, 19, in 1951, the two people I admired the most in the world, my dad and Ben Graham, both said, you know, you've got a good future, but don't start in stocks now because there's never been a year when the Dow Jones average has not ended up uh, below 200, and it's above 200 now. It's much too high, and if you start now selling stocks to people, they're going to have bad experiences. And so why don't you go wait a while and go work in the Omaha National Bank or do something, park yourself on the sidelines. Uh, there's always negatives. Uh, the country always faces problems. I mean, this country went through, you know, it went through a civil war. You know, it, it, it's gone through all kinds of things. But what happens? 
you know, we have a few lousy years from time to time. I mean, we've had probably 15 recessions since the country started. And we will always have a list of 10 or 15 things at the start of the year that will tell you why, you know, this country can't possibly work well. But all I can tell you is that it doesn't do it in a straight line. But the, the power of capitalism uh, is incredible. I mean, you know, that's, that's what is bringing us out of this recession. I mean, monetary and fiscal policy uh, have some utility, and certainly in the fall of 2008, the government was needed in a huge, huge way. It could do what was, it was the only one that could do what was needed. But if you look at the history of the United States, you know, probably half of our recessions have occurred during, uh, we'll say in the 19th century, when people didn't even know what fiscal or monetary policy was. I mean, it, what happened was that excesses would come in and then the, the resuscitative power of capitalism would, would uh, set the country back on the right, on, uh, on a stronger growth pattern. And that's happened time after time after time. And the game isn't over. I mean, it is not like the potential of, of America has been uh, what has happened is the rest of the world has caught on to some extent. So you're seeing, you know, some state capitalism in places like China, and they're they're turning economies loose that have been dormant for centuries. Uh, but it's not because the people are smarter. It's not because they work harder. It's just because they have tapped into a system that works marvelously over time. And I will tell you, in the next hundred years, you're going to have probably 15. Maybe, maybe as many as 20 lousy years, but we will be so far ahead of where we are now that, you know, that we'll be unrecognizable. Charlie? Well, I think you can go back a lot farther than that. You know, Europe survived the Black Death, where about a third of the people died. Uh, the, the world is going to go on. That's wildly optimistic for Charlie. <laughs> Have you got anything more encouraging than that to say, Charlie? <laughs> well, I don't know. I kind of I understand a little bit of Dick Holland's point of view. And by the way, I've known him a long time. He aced me out of any hope of being the chief candle snuffer at the Unitarian Church. <laughs> he was so damn good at it. <laughs> anyway, uh, what was the can, you, can you bring yourself to say anything optimistic? Well, I have a little bit of, of uh, a twist on that. And so I would say that you can be cheerful even if things are slightly deteriorating. And that's a very good quality to have. I have a personal saying that has always amused me. I say the politicians are never so bad you don't live to want them back. <laughs> well, on that note of wisdom, <laughs> let's go to area four. <laughs> Good morning, uh, Angie Jansen of Cambridge, Massachusetts. Uh, my question is, aside from the need to put huge amounts of capital to work, do you still believe that a high return on tangible capital business like C's or Coke is the best asset to, ho to hold in an inflationary environment? 
Or do you now think an irreplaceable hard asset with pricing power like a railroad or a hydroelectric dam is superior? Yeah. The first group is superior. Just as, as, I mean, if you can have a wonderful consumer product, uh, it doesn't have to be a consumer product, a, a, a product that requires very little capital to grow and to do more dollar volume uh, as will happen with inflation even if you don't have unit growth. Uh, and it doesn't take much capital uh, to support that growth. That is a wonderful asset to have in inflation. I mean, the ultimate test of that is your own earning ability. I mean, if, if, if you're an outstanding doctor, lawyer, whatever it may be, teacher, the, you, as inflation goes along, your services will command more and more in, in dollar terms, and you don't have to make any additional investment in yourself. Uh, People think of that, you know, with a, uh, a very long live real estate asset or something of the sort, or a farm or anything where additional capital is not required to finance inflationary growth. The worst kind of businesses are the businesses with tons of receivables and inventories and all of that. And in dollar terms, if, if their volume stays flat but the price level doubles and they need to come up with double the amount of money, uh, uh, to do that same volume of business, that can be a very bad asset. Now, normally, we are not enthused about businesses that require heavy capital investment, just like utilities and the railroad. We think that, uh, on the other hand, that particularly with the railroad, that uh, where you do not have any guaranteed lower rate of return, that you should be entitled to earn returns on assets that are becoming more and more valuable to the to the economy as uh, whether it's in because of inflationary factors or or because of just natural growth factors or in the case of the United States I think it'll be both uh, but the ideal business sees candy is doing uh, it was doing 25 million dollars of volume when we bought it and it sold 16 million pounds of candy at a little more than a dollar. Well, it retails a dollar ninety and we had some quantity discounts. So we were doing close to thirty million dollars worth of business. Now we're doing well over three hundred million dollars worth of business. It took nine million dollars of tangible assets to run it when it was doing uh, thirty and it takes about forty million of tangible assets to at three hundred and something. So we've only had to plow back thirty million dollars into a business which will make us, well, it's made us probably uh, a billion and a half pre-tax during that period. And if the price of candy doubles, we don't have any receivables to speak of. Our inventory turns fast. We don't store it or anything like that. We gear up seasonally. And the fixed assets aren't big. So that, that is a much better business to own than a utility business if you're going to have a lot of inflation. Charlie? Yeah, and what's interesting about it is that we didn't always know this. And, and so... And sometimes we forget it. <laughs> that's true, too. But it shows how continuous learning is absolutely required to have any significant achievement at all in the world. Yeah, and it, it does show, you know, I've said in the past that I'm a better businessman because I'm an investor, and I'm a better investor because I'm a businessman. I, there's nothing like actually experiencing the necessity 
particularly in the 1970s when inflation was gathering strength in the early 80s, you would see this absolutely required capital investment on a very big scale that really wasn't producing anything uh, commensurate in the way of, of earnings. I wrote an article for Fortune called How Inflation Swindles the Equity Investor back in 1977. You really want the ideal asset you know, is a royalty on somebody else's sales during inflation, where all you do is get a royalty check every month, and it's based on their sales volume, and you made some, you came up with some product originally, licensed it to them, and you never have another bit of capital investment. You have no receivables, you have no inventory, you have no fixed assets. That kind of a business is real inflation protection, assuming the product maintains its viability. Uh, uh, so even though we are going into some very capital-intensive businesses. Part of that reflects the fact we can't deploy the amount of capital we have uh, in a whole bunch of seized candies. We just can't, we can't find them. We'd love to find them, but we can't find them in the quantity. So we are not doing as well with capital when we have to invest many billions a year as we would if we were investing a few millions a year. There's no question. That's true in investments, it's true in operating businesses. We, there is a real disadvantage uh, to size, and uh, we just hope that problem grows. Now you're talking. <laughs> Becky. Aside from questions about Dave Sokol, the questions I've received most from shareholders have to do with dividends. And uh, Dave Corneal, who is a shareholder who couldn't be here this weekend because he's at his daughter's wedding, writes in, I know that Berkshire is a great allocator of capital, but as an owner of Berkshire stock and as I get closer to retirement, there will be a time when I will need income from my assets. Currently, Berkshire does not pay dividends, yet it loves collecting on dividends on its investments. It also generates extensive cash flow in which it could pay dividends if it chooses to. Currently, the only real option to get income from your Berkshire investment is to sell a share or two of the stock. Is there a point in the future where Berkshire shareholders may expect a dividend payment or what conditions would be needed for Berkshire to consider paying a dividend? Yeah, we will pay dividends. And, and matter of fact, there may be an argument that when we pay dividends, we should pay out almost 100%, because it does mean that we are lost the ability to find ways to invest a dollar uh, in a manner that creates more than a dollar of present value uh, for the shareholders. But uh, let's assume you had a savings account. And the savings account uh, paid 5%. Uh, and you had your choice of taking $50 a year out or letting the $50 stay in, and somebody would pay you 120% of that savings account anytime you wanted to sell a piece of it. Now, would you want to take the $5 out, or would you rather let it accumulate and have the ability to sell at 120 cents on the dollar uh, that account? Every dollar that's been reinvested uh, in Berkshire has created more than a dollar of market value. So it's much more intelligent if you control the dividend policy of, of, of Berkshire. It's much more intelligent for people to leave the dollar in, have it valued at a dollar twenty or a dollar thirty or whatever it may be valued, and then sell off a little piece if they want the income or if they want to receive some cash. And the logic of it, I think, is, is, is unquestionable. The execution of it is, is a problem. I mean, the question of whether we can keep investing dollars to create more than a dollar of, 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 of present market value, uh, you know, the, 
there's an end to that at some point. But so far, people by leaving uh, 160 billion at the end of the third quarter in the in the in the business have 200 billion dollars that they can cash out for at any time they wish. So, it there will come a time, and uh, you know who knows how soon because the numbers are getting big. There will come a time when we do not think we can lay out a you know 15 or 20 billion a year and get something that's immediately worth more than that for our shareholders. And like I say, when the time comes uh, where a, a dollar is only buying us 90 cents uh, of value, uh, we'll quit spending the dollar. We'll give it to the shareholders. But I, I predict that the day that Berkshire declares a dividend, the stock will go down. I mean, it will, and it should go down because it's an admission, essentially, that uh, a compounding machine has lost its ability to uh, to continue continue on that course, Charlie. Well, and there's nothing wrong with selling a little Berkshire stock to buy jewelry if you're in the right place. I would like to announce that my niece Cynthia visited Borsheim's yesterday, around I guess around three o'clock, and uh, she was there with her her boyfriend, and he proposed, and they bought a ring. And congratulations. Her mother did the same thing a few years ago. Uh, uh, and, you know, these things can become family traditions. Uh, so go out there, and who knows what will happen. <laughs> okay, number five. Jeremy Posen, Newton, Massachusetts. Mr. And Mr. Buffett and Mr. Munger, Berkshire Hathaway has had large investments in Wells Fargo and U.S. Bank. What are the revenue outlooks and business prospects for these two banks, giving the backdrop of slow U.S. growth, an extended U.S. consumer, a tepid rebound in the U.S. housing market, with foreclosures and write-downs lessening, but still at historically high levels, and the potential for greater-than-expected inflation or worse, possibly deflation similar to Japan. Thank you for your time and consideration. Yeah. Wells Fargo and U.S. Bancorp are both among the best uh, large banks, if not the best, uh, in the country. And they, they're different than uh, what you think of in terms of some money center banks. But they're very large. Wells is four times as large as USB. Banking as a whole, US banking, profitability will be considerably less, in my view, uh, in the period ahead than it was, say, in the early part of this century. And, one, and the, a very important reason is that the leverage will be reduced. Uh, and that's probably a good thing for society. It's, it may be a bad thing for individual banks that could use leverage intelligently, but the trouble was that they all thought they could use leverage intelligently, and the actions of one or more that were unintelligent about it uh, you know, had consequences for everybody, uh, which you can 
see if you view HBO on whatever it is. Is it May 26th then? <laughs> the, uh, uh, so I would say that return on assets, even if return on assets were as good as it was some years ago, there will be less assets per dollar of common equity than before, which means return on common equity will be less. Uh, we still think that Wells Fargo and U.S. Bank are very good uh, operations. We think they're very decent businesses. They're not as attractive as when leverage ratios could be higher. In terms of the troubles in banking, I, uh, uh, the, I think you've seen by far the worst in the past, and, and, and loan losses have been trending downward now for several quarters. And I think the expectation is that will continue. And I think banking is a very fundamental business. But as John Stump said a few years ago at Wells Fargo, he said, I don't know why we keep thinking of new ways to lose money when the old ones were working so well. You know? <laughs> uh, and banks, banks periodically go crazy. It, it's always on the asset side. I mean, here you've got cheap money. You've got the, you know, you've got, you've got the federal government behind, although the federal government has never had to pay out anything on, uh, in terms of the FDIC. The FDIC has handled 3,800 since it was established on January 1st, 1934. The FDIC has paid out uh, probably 3,800, 3,900 by now institutions, uh, 250 of them or so in the last couple of years. And that has not cost the U.S. taxpayer a penny. I mean, that has all come from FDIC assessments on other banks. It's been a mutual insurance company. Uh, so the banking, if you, keep, if you just keep out of trouble on the asset side, is a very good business because you get your money so cheap. And, uh, you know, because of the implicit uh, federal guarantee, and uh, you do get to leverage up to a fair extent, and America's been a pretty good place to lend money. So I like our positions in there. You will see that if you looked at those totals, you'll see we, we've added to Wells Fargo, and, and uh, uh, I think they're, both those companies are very well-run institutions but they will not be able to earn, I don't know what the figures were, but I think they were up in 25 or to 30% on tangible equity. And uh, that's not going to get repeated in the future, and it shouldn't be. Charlie? Well, yeah, we, we might add that M&T Bank, which most oh, people yeah. never talk about, is headed by a really sensible fellow. And, uh, it's been a wonderful investment for us. Yeah, as a matter of fact, if you'll get the M&T annual report, uh, it's written by Bob Wilmers, the, the letter. The first part of it's about M&T specifically, but the second part is about uh, particularly the American financial economy. And I would really recommend you read that. Bob is a very smart guy, and he has a lot of good observations. And, and frankly, the other one I'd recommend you read is Jamie Dimon's letter, J.P. Morgan is, is, uh, is a tour de force in terms of uh, uh, describing the banking scene, the economic scene. He has some real insights in there about some very important subjects. We don't own that stock, but it's a, uh, it's a letter that, that I think everybody could learn a lot from reading, as they could from reading uh, Bob Wilmer's letter at, at M&T. 
And those people who like an element of morality and business, uh, Wilmer sounds like an Old Testament prophet. I mean, he really doesn't like it that all the really big banks are making so much money out of trading because he says, you're really trying to outsmart your own customers and he'd rather serve them in a culture of uh, deserved trust in both directions. It's hard to think he's totally wrong. He also expresses a, quite a dislike for the fact that a market system creates uh, a reward system where money sort of disproportionately flows to people who work with money and that that tends to attract uh, a disproportionate number of people that uh, of lots of ability that he thinks might be, at least some of them might be better deployed elsewhere. It's an interesting read. Yeah, it's one of the best annual reports that's ever come out of banking, right out of Buffalo. Okay, Andrew? This question comes from Neil Steinhoff, uh, who writes, uh, the commodity market, and particularly gold, have appreciated astronomically over the last few years. My Berkshire Hathaway stock is only slightly better or doing better than it was in 2006. It's barely kept up with inflation, he says. Please explain why you have not invested more heavily in commodities. As long as Ben Bernanke continues to print money, and there's no indication that he's going to stop anytime soon, isn't it, isn't it right that commodities, and particularly gold, will continue to appreciate? Well, I, I would point out that when we started with Berkshire, it was about three quarters of an ounce of gold. And it, gold was $20 an ounce then, and it was 15 So gold, even at $1,500, uh, as a ways to go. Uh, and <laughs> the... I think he's right about inflation, uh, but if you think about it, there, there are three major categories of investment, uh, and you ought to think very hard about which category you want to be in before you start thinking about the, the choices available within that category. Now, the, the first category is anything denominated in a currency. It can be bonds, it can be deposits in a bank, it can be a money market fund, it can be cash in your pocket. And the, if, you, if you will reach in your pocket, I don't like to do this, but uh, and pull out your wallet. This is, you're watching an historic event. Uh, <laughs> if you look at this, and I might point out this is a one, Charlie carries a... <laughs> On the back of it, it says, in God we trust. And that's really false advertising. Uh, the, the, uh, if Elizabeth Warren were here, she would say, quite properly, it should say, in government we trust. Because God isn't going to do anything about that dollar bill, you know, if government does the wrong things. Uh, in terms of keeping it uh, as valuable as it was when you parted with it to buy a bond or put it in a bank. Uh, any currency-related investment is a bet on how government now and in the future will behave. And if you happen to be unfortunate to, li fortunate to live in Zimbabwe and they and you decided to make currency-related investments, uh, you know, you 
family would have left you by now, and it, it was not a good decision. Almost all currencies have declined in value over time. I mean, it, it may be built into almost any economic system that it will be easier to work with a value, a currency that declines in value than a currency that appreciates in value. And the Japanese might reaffirm that here uh, with their experience. So as a class, currency-related investments, whether they're in the UK or the United States or any place else, unless we're getting paid extremely well for having them, we do not think make much sense. The second category of investments regard items that you buy that don't produce anything, but that you hope someone will pay you more for later on. And the classic case of that uh, is gold. And I've used this illustration before, but if you take all of the gold in the world, don't get too excited now, the, uh, and put it into a cube, it will be a cube that's about 67 feet on a side. It'd be 165,000 or 170,000 metric tons. So you could have a cube, if you owned all the gold in the world, you could have a cube that would be 67 or 68 feet uh, on a side. And you could get a ladder and you could climb up on top of it and you could say, you know, I'm sitting on top of the world and, you know, and think you're king of the world. You could, you know, you could fondle it, you could polish it, you could, you could do all these things with it, stare at it, but it isn't going to do anything. You know, it's, all you are doing when you buy that is that you're hoping that somebody else a year from now or five years from now will pay you more to own something that, it, again, can't do anything, and then thinks that somebody else will buy something five years later from him. In other words, you're betting on not just how scared people are now of paper money, you're betting on how much they think a year from now people will be scared two years from then on. Uh, Keynes described all of this, uh, I think it was in chapter 12 of the general theory when he talked about this famous beauty contest where the game was not to pick out the most beautiful woman among the group, but the one that other people would think was the most beautiful woman. And then he carried it on to second and third degrees of reasoning. Anytime you buy an asset that can't do anything, uh, produce anything, you're simply betting on whether somebody else will pay more for, again, an asset that can't do anything. And, and actually, we did that with silver, but silver had a, an industrial use. And about 13 years ago, I bought a whole lot of silver. And if you'll notice, silver's moved recently. So I, you know, I, my timing was only about 13 years off, but you know, who's perfect? The, uh, the third category of asset is something that you value based on its, on its, what it will produce, what it will deliver. You buy a farm because you expect a certain amount of corn or soybeans or cotton or whatever it may be to, be, to come your way every year. And you decide how much you pay based on how much you think the asset itself will deliver over time. And those are the assets that appeal to me and Charlie. Now, there's some 
logical follow-on to that. If you buy that farm and you really think about how many bushels of corn, how many bushels of soybeans will it produce, how much do I have to pay the tenant farmer, how much do I have to pay in taxes and so on, you can make a rational calculation and the success of that investment will be de determined in your own mind by whether it meets your expectations as to what it delivers. Logically, you should not care whether you get a quote on that farm a day later or a week later, or a month later or a year later. We feel the same way about businesses. When we buy Iscar or we buy Lubrizol or whatever, we don't run around getting a quote on it every week and say, you know, is it up or down or anything like that. We look to the business. We feel the same way about securities. When we buy a marketable security, we don't care if the stock exchange closes for a few years. So when we look at Berkshire, we are looking at what we think can be delivered from the productive assets that we own and how we can utilize that capital in acquiring more productive assets. And there will be times, you know, cotton doubled in price, much to our chagrin at Fruit of the Loom, but you know, if you own cotton uh, for the right six or eight months in the past year, uh, you came close to doubling your money. But if you go back a century and try to make money only cotton over time, it has not been a very good investment. Uh, so to pick a product, crude oil, cotton, uh, gold, silver, uh, anything that, and of course cotton has utility, gold really doesn't have utility. Uh, I, would, I would bet on good producing businesses uh, to outperform something that doesn't do anything uh, over any period of time. But there's no question that rising prices create their own excitement. So when people see gold go up a lot, I mean, if your neighbor owns some gold and you think you're smarter than he is and you didn't own any, and your wife says to you, you know, you know, how come that jerk next door is making money, you know, and you're just sitting here, uh, it, it can start affecting behavior. And people like to get in on things that have been rising in price and all of that. But over time, that has not been the way to get rich. Charlie? Well, I certainly agree with that. And besides, it's something peculiar to buy an asset which only will really go up if the world really goes to hell. <laughs> it doesn't strike me as a terribly rational thing to do. I think you ever figure on leaving the country because the country is going to kill you. And if you assume all the other countries you might go to will also be thoroughly screwed up. I think all those people should buy a little gold. But I think the rest of us would be better off with Berkshire Hathaway stock. <laughs> and of course, there's another class of people that think they can protect themselves by painting, buying paintings of soup cans. <laughs> I don't recommend that either. One thing about gold also is that in addition to this 67-foot cube, more gold is being produced every year. So you have to have buyers not only to offset sellers uh, in the natural course of events, but you have to absorb 
something like $100 billion worth of added items of no utility. I mean, it's really interesting. I mean, they dig it up out of the ground in South Africa, and they ship it to the Federal Reserve in New York, and they put it back in the ground. I mean, if you were watching this from Mars, you know, you, you might think it was a little peculiar, but think of how many people it makes happy, you know. I might mention that the value of that cube, all the gold in the world, is now about valued at 1,500 plus, is about $8 trillion. And there are a billion acres, roughly, of farmland in the United States. That's a little over a million and a half square miles. And that's valued at something over two trillion. And if you take 10 Exxon Mobiles, you get up maybe another four trillion. And maybe not that much even. And so you could own all of the farmland in the United States, every bit of it. And you could own 10 Exxon Mobiles and you could stick a trillion or so in your pocket for walking around money. And you could have your choice of that or this 67-foot piece of gold that you could fondle. And <laughs> that may seem like a close choice to some people, but not to me. <laughs> well, you would also need an army to defend the gold. <laughs> it's really not a very good spot. Okay, number six. Yeah. Well, Millard, Dallas, Texas. Uh, Mr. Buffett, Mr. Munger, um, when you were raising your first investment funds, how did you go about attracting investors? And once you had your first funds and your first investors, how did you go about growing them? Sounds to me like a man that's about ready to start a hedge fund. Uh, <laughs> uh, the, uh, in my case, I'd moved back here from New York in March or so of, of uh, 1956, and a few members of my family said we'd like you to manage our investments just like I did when I was selling securities out here before I went to New York. And I didn't like being in the security selling business, uh, partly because if I sold somebody a stock at 20 and it went down to 10, I wanted to buy more. but. I couldn't face the idea of people that had bought it at 20 and based only on confidence in me, not because they understood it and now they were feeling depressed. And it was, it just wasn't, it wasn't very satisfactory. I, I could not do as well managing money if people were watching every decision as I could if I did it in a room all by myself. So was, I just told these seven members of the family, uh, one of them, actually it was my roommate in college and his mother, uh, they came in also. I, I said, you know, if you'd like to join up in a partnership, I'm not going to tell you what's going on, but I will tell you that I will be doing with my own money what I'm doing with yours. Later on, I put all my own money in. Uh, and it just was very slow. Uh, uh, a few months later, uh, Graham Newman that I'd worked for was liquidating, and, and a fellow named Homer Dodge asked, Ben Graham, what he should do with the money he was getting out of Graham. Newman, he said, this kid used to work for me, and he's okay. And so he came out and went in with me, and another fellow late in the fall saw, had seen the notice of partnership formed in some legal paper, and he said, what's this, and came in with me. And it just, we just stumbled along. And for uh, almost six years, I operated out of my house, no employee. I 
I kept all the books. I filed the tax returns. I you know, went out and picked up the stocks personally and stuck them in a safe deposit box. When Charlie came along, I kept chiding him about the fact I met him in 1959, and I said, you know, law is okay as a hobby, but, but it's not, no place for a man with your intellect to uh, spend his time. And, and, well, I'll let Charlie take it over from there. <laughs> it actually took me a long time to leave what it was a family business. And uh, so any of you who are having a slow time accepting good ideas, why? should be cheered by my example because it was some years after you started working on me and you pounded on me and I slowly got the point. And he was asking about attracting money. Well, of course it helps if you conducted yourself in life so that other people trust you. And then it helps even more. Is, is he explaining why I was so slow and he was so fast? <laughs> then it helps even more if other people are right to trust you. So the formula is quite simple. We're first one, then the other. Unfortunately, with the present fee structure, just attracting money rather than performing with it can be enormously lucrative. So it, it, uh, the skill of attracting money may be uh, at least in the short run, and maybe the intermediate run, maybe a more important quality than the ability to manage money. Uh, uh, but we, neither one of us ever charged any fixed fee of any kind. And am I right on that, Charlie? You didn't, well, we stopped taking any significant overrides on other people's money at very young ages and at very small amounts of net worth. I wish our example were more common, but I like our compensation practices too, and they're spreading slowly. We get a new company every, what, five years? No. <laughs> okay, Carol. Um, this is from Jeff, sorry, Jeff Cunningham of Directorship. Uh, Berkshire's corporate strategy resembles that of the go-go conglomerates of the 1960s, Janine's ITT, Teledyne, Textron. Small corporate team, tight financial controls, sector neutrality, and little involvement in subsidiary operations, and ultimately not fully valued for the sum of their parts. If you disagree with this, how does Berkshire differ? Yeah. It, it, we are a conglomerate, and, and you know, people shy from that name, but that's exactly what we are. And, and I think I laid out in the annual report uh, at least one of the advantages of being a conglomerate, namely the tax-efficient transfer of money uh, from businesses that do not have good ways of using it to businesses that have better ways of using it, which is if it's, if it's carried out intelligently, is a very significant plus. The conglomerates you mentioned, and I'm familiar with all of them, uh, really uh, became uh, and uh, sort of stock issuance machines where the idea was to get your stock to sell at a very high multiple and then trade it for something else that was selling at a lower multiple, and voila, 
you know, earnings per share went up, and then people said, you'll do it again. So it was, it was really accepted and endorsed by Wall Street that if you had this sort of semi-Ponzi scheme of issuing shares constantly for things that had lower P.E. ratios, everybody knew what the game was, but they thought the game would continue to succeed. And for a while, it did. And the Gulf and Westerns of the world and, and the Littons of the world, and there were numbers of them, uh, it was almost like an unspoken conspiracy that nobody will point out that this is kind of a perpetual motion machine. Uh, and if they don't, it'll keep working. But if somebody says anything about it, somebody says the emperor has no clothes, it'll all collapse. The interesting thing, of course, you mentioned Teledyne in there. Teledyne played that game, and then it ended, and all of this stuff came back to earth. But then Teledyne went into reverse and bought in stock like crazy when their stock got underpriced. So they issued stock like crazy when it was overpriced, and they bought it in to an extraordinary degree when it was underpriced, and it, it created a sensational record. Most of those companies, though, I think had, I, I think had very little relationship to Berkshire. Uh, it's true that I think some of them are pretty decentralized, although I remember, didn't Harold Janine have some famous room that he brought in everybody and yes. chewed them out you know, monthly for not making their projections so they learned to make them whether they were actually really making them or not. And, and the managers were, if you took Charlie Bluedorn at Gulf and Western or you know, take the group, they were primarily thinking about how Jimmy Ling at, at, at uh, Ling Temp at LTV, and they were primarily thinking about how they could pump the stock up to a level where they could buy big established businesses that, that uh, were selling at lower PE ratios and sort of have this perpetual motion game going. And it, 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 it came to an end. I don't think there's, a, you know, at Berkshire, we are not in that game. We are in the game of trying to buy very good businesses that we're going to keep forever and having them grow their earnings and have them to also throw off cash that we can use to buy more similar businesses. It is a conglomerate. Conglomerates generally are unpopular, and I don't disagree with why they are, but I think it's a very rational way of uh, running the business as long as uh, you keep it focused on running businesses and not as a stock issuance machine. Charlie? Well, yes, and some of those companies got into really pretty heavy manipulation of the numbers. One of them said, I know what I'm going to report, I just don't know how I'm going to do it. <laughs> That's not the attitude around this place. Yeah, we don't know what we're going to report. <laughs> no, no. And sometimes we don't know how to do it either. <laughs> okay, number seven. Good morning, uh, Warren and Charlie. John Norwood from West Des Moines, Iowa. Uh, I have a question on legacy. 100 years from now, Warren and Charlie, what would each of you like to be remembered for? Old age. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've heard Warren say that what he once said at his funeral is that's the oldest looking corpse I ever saw. I have a different saying that came down from one of my great-grandfathers, and I think it, he wanted to be remembered for 
a fortune fairly won and wisely used. That's a pretty good system. Yeah, I would, if, if you really ask me, I, I probably like teacher. I enjoy teaching a lot. And, uh, and some people think I do a little too much of the didactic stuff, but I, I like students coming and, and uh, you know, I benefited by some fabulous teachers, starting with my dad, but going on to Ben Graham, going on to Tom Murphy. I mean, there are lots of, lots of great teachers. So I, I would say that. Uh, I might point out that, that uh, on Will Chamberlain's gravestone, I think it says, at last I sleep alone. Which, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, we have some people from Kansas here anyway. <laughs> okay, Becky. This question comes from Pierre Sorrell. He's a portfolio manager at Fidelity, and he says that the U.S. dollar has been de depreciating against major currencies. The Federal Reserve continues to run a zero interest rate policy in contrast to other major economies that are raising rates or have stepped back from quantitative easing. A few years ago, Berkshire had a short U.S. dollar position to preserve the company's value from the devaluating dollar. So what's the company's management doing about the risk of further U.S. dollar weakness, given that most of the company's assets and operating businesses are denominated in the U.S. dollar? Yeah, we had a significant short position some years ago. Last year, we had a small short position in two currencies, and we made about $100 million in them. But, but we have not been really active in the foreign exchange market. We think, uh, shouldn't speak for Charlie here on this, but I, I think that, that uh, there's no question that the purchasing power of the U.S. dollar will decline over time. The only question is at what rate, but I also think that the purchasing power of most currencies around the world, almost all currencies around the world, will decline. And, of course, a short position is just a bet on which one declines at a at the faster rate, and I don't have a strong conviction on that. I've got, I've got some mild feelings about it, but not enough to where I want to back it up with a lot of money. Uh, we do own some businesses. Let me take Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola, I don't have the exact figures, but my guess is that 80% or thereabouts of the earnings will be non-dollar, uh, and we've got exposure uh, in various other uh, ways, but we are not, we're unlikely to make another big currency bet, although I, uh, you know, I do think that the purchasing power of the U.S. dollar is destined to uh, decrease, and I have fears, but I've long had some unwarranted fears of it declining at a rapid rate. Now, Charlie has pointed out to me that the dollar of 1930 when I was born is worth six cents now, you know, 16 to one in terms of depreciation. And as he points out, we've both done pretty well. So inflation has not destroyed us. If somebody had said to me and 1930, in addition to this Great Depression you're facing in a world war where it looks like we're even losing for a little while and all of these terrible things. On top of that, that dollar that, uh, you know, your grandfather's going to hand you when you're born is only going to be worth six cents in purchasing power. That might have been discouraging, but overall, we've still done pretty well. So 
I hate inflation, but we've adapted pretty well to it uh, over the years, and we have not had the total runaway type inflation that, that really can be upsetting to a society yet, but I think it's something you always have to guard against. Charlie? No, but God knows where the world is headed. I just think that one way or another the world muddles through. Take a really god-awful culture, which is Greece, modern Greece. I don't mean there's anything wrong with the Greeks but in their family life, but the way they manage their money and pay their taxes. And, and the main industry in Greece, or one of the main industries, is tourist attractions. And they closed right most of the time during the tourist season. It's a pretty dysfunctional government. <laughs> and of course, people don't want to pay any taxes or do much work. And yet, there it is. It's the people of Greece are surviving. It's lasted a long time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Adam Smith said it very well. He said, you know, a great civilization has a lot of ruin in it. It takes a long time, and there's a lot left after you've been through a good deal of ruin. That gets an easier game than, than the ordinary process of living and then dying. Well, I think we'll see a lot of inflation, <laughs> but if, if I had a choice, you know, I would rather be born in the United States today than any other place, any other time in history. <laughs> Okay, area eight. Good morning, Mr. Munger and Mr. Buffett. This is Mary Bundrick from Rochester, Minnesota. Um, I was wondering what factors would you consider in deciding between investment in Berkshire Hathaway versus a null mutual fund? Well, I I advise people to buy an. Uh, index funds, actually, if, if, uh, if they're not going to be active in investments. I mean, if, if you just are going, uh, if you've got a day job and, and, and you want to just put money aside over time, I think the average individual will do better buying an index fund consistently over time uh, than almost anything uh, else available to them. I think it'll be a perfectly satisfactory investment. It won't be a, it'll never be regarded as a great investment, but it'll be a perfectly satisfactory investment. Uh, if I personally had a choice between an index fund or Berkshire at present prices, I would rather own Berkshire. Uh, uh, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't be unhappy if you told me I had to leave all my money in an index fund uh, uh, for the rest of my life. And, and uh, but I like Berkshire better. <laughs> Charlie? Well, I like it a lot better, and I'd be very unhappy if I had to own an index fund. I, I, my ambitions are larger. I don't think the average return of a skilled investor over the next 50 years is going to be as good after all factors as it was over the last 50 years. So I think reduced expectations are the best defense any investor has. And after that, I think Berkshire's a pretty good bet. Charlie's big on lowering expectations. Absolutely. <laughs> That's the way I got married. 
My wife lowered her ex expectations. <laughs> and he lived up to them. <laughs> okay, Andrew. Uh, the question is, can you explain the company's policy for your own personal investing outside of Berkshire and that of your other managers? And why aren't all trades and investments first cleared through a compliance department like that at most other companies? Well, I don't think it is true of most other companies. Uh, we have 260,000 employees, uh, and we have uh, one company that's a subsidiary of General Re called New England Asset Management, but that's the only company that advises other people on investments or operates in, in the investment field. At Berkshire, uh, there are presently uh, three people uh, that can execute trades, and then there are a few other clerical people that would would uh, see what was done. But, but we are not an uh, investment advisory firm. We're not an, uh, uh, a mutual fund or anything of the sort. So uh, if we, we have some, uh, I think, pretty clear rules, they're going to be looked at, again, I can assure you, by the Audit Committee. But in terms of the code of conduct, uh, code of ethics and insider trading rules, which go to the managers, uh, I don't think there's anything ambiguous in those. Now, to extend those beyond, I don't know, Mark, how many people those go to, but whether 60 or 70 or something, I'm not sure the number. Uh, the problem with rules, you know, is, uh, I mean, You've got to have them, and we emphasize not only the letter of them, but the spirit. That's why I write that letter every couple of years. Uh, I was on the uh, audit committee, for example, of Coca-Cola. And Coca-Cola has about one-fifth as many employees, or did then, had about 50,000, about, had about one-fifth as many employees as Berkshire. And each time the audit committee met, we had eight or ten code violations. I mean, people... Uh, if you take Berkshire at 260,000 people, you know, that's about the number of households in the greater metropolitan Omaha. And perfect as we like to think we are in Omaha, I will tell you there's a lot of, a lot of things going on in Omaha right as we sit here that, uh, you know, do not match the rules. So it's a, it's a real problem. Now, the problem, obviously, with the Sokol thing is that it hit very, very high up, you know. And, 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 but we had a case uh, some time back where a fellow that was a friend of mine, vice president uh, of one of our subsidiaries, and like I say, a, a personal friend, and we supplied the evidence that sent him to jail. You know, it, uh, it has happened. We had, we had a, as I remember, some years ago, I think it was in Woodbury, New York, we may have had a woman arrested in the offices just because we, we want to make very clear, you know, what, that we mean business. And as, as the, uh, as the uh, audit committee said, that this is not public relations, this is reality. Here's a letter that went out from Johns Manville. I didn't know anything about it until uh, Todd Rava gave it to me the other day. But, 
but it describes what it dated April 27th. And it said, the audit committee clearly found that Mr. Sokol compromised the integrity-related values of both Berkshire and JM have worked so hard to ingrain in the fabric of both companies. This should serve as a tragic lesson learned for every employee in JM. And then in bold face, there are no gray areas when it comes to integrity. And it goes on. Uh, so we hope to get some value out of this uh, experience that will help us reinforce with not only the 60 or 70 managers, but with 260,000 people that we do mean business on this. And we've showed them we mean business when we, we have sent more than one person to jail. Um, but there will be, you know, if we, we can have a, all the records in the world and if somebody wants to trade outside them or something, you know, I, uh, uh, they're not going to tell us they're trading in their cousin's name. I mean, it, you know, it just doesn't work that way. And, and it, it, we will have occasions in the future when people do wrong things. Usually they get handled at the subsidiary level. I mean, it's somebody doing something, whether it's getting a kickback from a vendor or stealing out of a cash register or whatever it may be. And then, you know, we get the occasional mega one, which, which uh, is very painful. But uh, we will, if there's anything we can do in the rules that will make it even more explicit or get across further the idea that rules are not made to be danced around, but rather that the spirit of them extends beyond them. Uh, we want to be sure we do it. Charlie? Yeah, all that said, if you look at the greatest institutions in the world, they select very trustworthy people, and they trust them a lot. And it's so much fun to be trusted and there's so much self-respect you get from it when you are trusted and are worthy of the trust that I think your best compliance cultures are the ones which have this attitude of trust. And some of the ones with the biggest compliance departments, like Wall Street, have the most scandals. So it's not so simple that you can make your behavior better automatically just by making the compliance department bigger and bigger and bigger. This, this, this general cultural of, culture of trust is what works. And you know, Berkshire hasn't had that many scandals of consequence. And I don't think we're going to get huge numbers either. Okay, number nine. Hi, Hi Charlie and Warren. I'm Michelle from Decatur, Illinois. Half the U.S. economy seems to be in a sluggish recovery while most foreign economies are showing solid growth numbers. Are there any significant changes you think could be made to either current U.S. E economic policy or Federal Reserve policy or tax laws to get the economy healthy and growing in the U.S.? Yeah, we really had our foot to the floor in both monetary and fiscal policy. Uh, you know, you've seen it obviously on the monetary side with extended period of effectively zero interest rates and actually with the chairman just the other day saying this is gonna go on for an extended period. 
Uh, and then they asked him what an extended period meant, and he was, he said an extended period. The, uh, but we, it's hard to imagine pushing harder on, on monetary policy than has occurred. The interesting thing is people think of fiscal policy and they think, well, we had a stimulus bill. Well, if you think about what stimulus really is, it's not whether you call something a stimulus bill. If you had something that was called a stimulus bill and you didn't run a deficit, it would not be a, you know, it would not be a, a stimulus. You'd be, uh, uh, and if, if you don't have anything you call a stimulus bill at all, but you're spending 10% more of your GDP than you're taking in, you are applying a f incredible stimulus, fiscal stimulus, to the economy. We have a huge fiscal stimulus program going on now, and it's called taking in 15% of GDP and spending 25% of GDP. That's, that's extraordinary. So I think that we have used those levers in a way that's almost unprecedented. And I think it's been wise in general to do what's done. And I think it was particularly wise what was done in, in the fall of 2008. But I think generally we have followed the right policies. I think they're less important than most people think they are. I think if you did the wrong policies, it would it could really screw things up. But, but I don't, I don't, I think the natural resuscitative powers of capitalism are, will be the biggest factor in taking us out. And I think you've seen that over the last two years, and we're seeing it month by month. I would say this, residential construction is flatlined at, you know, 500,000 or so uh, uh, units per year. Uh, I think when it comes back, and it will, but it will take, it takes working off a crazy excess inventory we had, and there's no way to do that except through creating fewer residential units than you create households. That's how you reduce the oversupply. When that end, when that part comes back, I think you're going to see much more of a pickup uh, in employment than you might think just by looking at construction workers. I mean, we have Shaw carpets, you know, I'm sure they're not counted as construction jobs, but we have thousands fewer people working there because residential construction is where it is. And we have people at the furniture mart and, and how, many there, how much carpet they're selling or houses. So I think there's a lot of indirect as well as direct uh, a reservoir of, of jobs uh, that will be drawn upon uh, or, or utilized uh, when residential construction comes back. I don't think I'd measure it just by the number of construction workers that are uh, being employed currently versus, say, four or five years ago. Uh, and I th it, it will come back. I don't, know, I, I don't know when. I said in the annual report, I thought you'd be seeing it by the end of the year. I may or may not be right on that, but I, that would be my guess, best guess still. We are creating households faster than we're creating, creating uh, housing units. And, you know, we lose housing units. Just, you know, you can look at the, you know, with the tornadoes recently. And so there are, that problem will get cured. And I don't think, when you mentioned we're progressing more slowly than other places, certainly in terms of, of Asia, you know, there's no question about it, or Brazil. But, but 
actually, I think our pace of coming out of this, while it's, it's been sl slow, compared to the hit we took in 2008, the American economy was paralyzed. It's really, it's come back quite a distance, and we see that in, in our businesses. Now, you know, our peak on rail car loadings were 219,000 one week, I believe, uh, in 2006, but, and our bottom was 150 or 51,000. We'll probably run 190,000 or thereabouts currently, and that'll pick up more as the year goes along. So it's come back a significant way. We have certain companies that are setting records that serve basic industries. If you look at TTI, which makes, which distributes electronic components, has thousands and thousands of customers all over the world, and it's setting new records, and it's, it's way up in the first quarter, and it set a record last year. If you look at ISCAR, which supplies nothing but basic industry, I mean, nobody buys little carbon cutting tools, you know, to put in their recreation room or anything. This stuff is used, you know, for making big things. And their business is going up and up and up, you know, month by month. So the economy is coming back. And, and uh, when residential construction finally gets this huge overhang uh, largely eliminated, I, I, think, uh, I think you'll see a lot of improvement uh, in the employment picture. Charlie? Yeah, the one place that I feel we're making a huge mistake is not learning enough from the big mess that came from wretched excess in our financial system. I don't think we throttled the sin and folly out of that aspect of the economy nearly enough. And I think if you look at all the panics and depressions of the United States, they all came from financial collapses usually preceded by perfectly asinine and greedy behavior. And I think there would be a lot to be said for taking uh, an ax to our financial sector and whittling it down to a more constructive size. Well, tell us more about how you use that ax. Well, Warren, I'll make myself ridiculous, but I guess I'm so old I'm entitled to do that. <laughs> the, I would have the tax system discourage trading I would have various kinds of Tobin taxes. I would have securities trading more with the frequency of real estate than the trading way computer algorithms where one person's computers outwit another person's computers in what amounts to sort of legalized front running. I don't think we need any of that stuff. And I think making heroes out of the people who succeed at it is not good for the fiber of the country either. I hate the idea that 25% of our best engineers are going into the financial sector. So I think it's crazy what we've allowed. And I think the lack of contrition in our financial sector after the disgraceful stuff they got us into is perfectly awesome. It makes Dave Sokol look like a hero. He's getting warmed up. <laughs> Just as a sidelight, you know, how many of you know that if you trade an S&P future contract, uh, 500, S&P 500 contract, and you hold it for 10 seconds, 
and you have a profit that 60% of the gain is long-term gain and 40% is short-term gain. So essentially, our Congress has said that this activity should be more lightly taxed, you know, than cleaning washrooms or, or doing all the things that you people do every day, that uh, you get a special tax treatment. Now, that illustrates one of the problems with the tax code in that there's a few people that care intensely about having that in there, and the cost of it in terms of less revenue for the U.S. government is diffused among a large group, none of whom have enough interest to want to go out and write their congressman or hire a lobbyist to fight the other way. But it's pretty extraordinary that uh, we have decided that that particular form of activity should uh, should get 60% taxed at a 15% maximum rate, even though it may only take 10 or 20 seconds and be just a little flicker on a screen. And the hedge fund operators of America get a much lower tax rate than the professors of physics or the drivers of taxis. This is demented. Well, with that, we're getting to our break at noon, and I promised, I made a bet three years ago with some fellows that run a fund of funds, and I promised to put the figures up uh, every year as to how we're doing. It's a 10-year deal, and, and if we can put up the slide, what number would that be? Probably five. Um, as you can see, these fund of funds, these are five fund of funds groups chosen by uh, these people who I like, uh, Ted Sidus and his friends, and, and uh, Ted couldn't be with us today, but uh, we will put these figures up annually. He got off to a very good start with his group. Uh, obviously, hedge funds should do better in a down market, but, uh, and we haven't caught him yet with the S&P 500, but it'll give you all a reason to keep coming back over the next seven years as I report regularly on, on how we are doing uh, in the, uh, in the S&P 500 versus the five fund of funds. As, as Carol pointed out in an article recently, or a, or a uh, maybe it was on the web, on, uh, in reporting on this, she, she uh, looked at the bottom line where uh, the investors in the S&P 500 are behind for the three years, and the investors in the fund of funds are behind, and the only people that are ahead so far are the investment managers. <laughs> They're doing very well at, the, at this point. So we'll keep you up to date on that. We're going to take a break. Uh, we're close to an hour for lunch. We'll be back here, and we'll take up the questioning where we left off. Thank you. Mm -hmm.